All right, if you want to grab a seat. And as you get yourself, uh, as you get yourself settled in, if you have a Bible, if you've got a Bible, whether that's uh, a print copy or you've got one on a mobile device, a cell phone or a tablet or something, you want to open it up to Hebrews chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. While you get yourself situated, uh, I don't normally do this, but if you were unable to be here last week, we actually paused in our series on Hebrews in order to uh, spend some time just in closing out the year, the last Sunday of the year, the last two years. Um, I've taken that weekend to just share some kind of pastoral reflection or encouragement. Uh, and so this year, I did that on a topic that I think is critically important, and so it, it isn't my norm to stand up here and say, hey, you should go check out last week's sermon if you missed it, but that topic is about hurry and uh, rush and the antidote to those being rest and Sabbath, and I think that message is really, really important, not because I, I said something earth-shattering or groundbreaking, but because I think that Scripture lays out for us a healthier pattern than the one that our society often puts forward as being necessary. And so if you missed that, I would encourage you, whether it's via our website, uh, the podcast channel, or the app, to go back, find that, and make the time to listen to it. I think it, I think it'll be valuable for you. I think it could change the pace of your life. I pray that the Holy Spirit would use that for us as an entire church to live a life in the rhythm with which God created us. Uh, that's healthiest for us and most glorifying for him. And so if you missed that, I encourage you to go check it out. We're going to press on in Hebrews today and where we are, the first five verses of Hebrews chapter eight, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, that might be in the, that might stop in the middle of a paragraph. It might stop at the end of a paragraph. That's also the end of a section, or it might be like one verse short of starting a new section. Uh, I'll explain to you why it is that that's where we're going to pause. Uh, when we get to there. But the first five verses of Hebrews chapter 8 offer what is essentially a summary of the first seven chapters. And in five sentences, you get kind of an encapsulation of what the author has been saying since the beginning of the letter. As I was working on this, I kept thinking about uh, when I was in, I think it was junior high, and I had my first interaction with a Shakespeare play. And uh, like 90 to 98% of people who have their first interaction with Shakespeare. I had no idea what was happening. And so what I would do is that I would look at the Shakespeare, but then I would really read the cliff notes. And so I would show up to class having at least perused what was available in the Shakespeare, which meant virtually nothing to me. Uh, And then I like really studied the cliff notes as if that those were going to be the things that were going to like prop me up through whatever test or quiz or heaven forbid I get called on in front of the class to explain something. And so um, the Cliff's Notes don't give you the depth. They don't give you the fullness of what was in the original, but they at least give you kind of the summary or the broad picture. That's what we're going to have here in Hebrews uh, 8 verses 1 to 5. Not all the depth of the first seven chapters, but at least a running summary of what we've seen up to this point before in verse 6 the author jumps into kind of the next thought in his letter. And so let's read these verses together, and then we'll jump in. Hebrews 8, starting in verse 1. Now the main point of what is being said is this. 
We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those who Uh, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. This is simple today. And so the goal is to just not overcomplicate it. The whole letter of Hebrews is laser focused on exalting Jesus. For a persecuted group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who may have been tempted to start looking back to Judaism rather than pressing forward into their faith in Christ, the author of Hebrews does one thing, and that's just to remind them how staggeringly, gloriously great Jesus is. To show them over and over and over via as many different ways as he possibly can, helping them look from as many angles as he possibly can at how Jesus is better than any other thing. These five sentences are a succinct reminder of the ground that's been covered up to this point. And with that in mind, the only goal today is to just look at Jesus and see him for as glorious and superior as he is and just let our hearts enjoy that. And so uh, I hope that and pray that over the next few minutes, uh, our hearts are just spurred forward into loving Jesus more into seeing him as more and more glorious and more and more wonderful, as should be what happens in the life of a believer every single day. And so let's pray toward that end, and then we'll start working our way through these five verses. God, thank you for this morning, Lord, for the chance to gather as a church family and to worship you, to lift our hearts in unison, singing, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art. Lord, I pray that that would be uh, like a true anthem for us, not just in the next year. Lord, we could sing that in the middle of the summer, and it should be true of every day going forward. God, I pray this morning that you would illuminate for us via your word, by your Holy Spirit, God, show us just how marvelous Jesus is. Would our hearts truly declare that He is better than all things. Would our anthem truly be glory, glory? We have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. God, I pray that uh, you would be glorified in this time as we look at your word, as we worship together, as we fellowship together. Lord, would everything that we do here bring you glory and honor and praise? Would we make much of Jesus together this morning? We pray in his matchless name, amen. Here's the main point today. The main point is this, that in Jesus we have the object and need not be distracted by the shadows. I want to start in verse 5. That's where we get this object-shadow sort of dichotomy. It says this, these, and that these is everything that the author has been talking about over the course of this letter that came from sort of the Jewish Old Testament tradition. Priests, sacrifices, altars, certain Old Testament types like Moses or Melchizedek. These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. All those other things are wonderful, important, necessary aspects of Old Testament revelation in Jewish faith. But they are lesser things than Jesus. They are copies and shadows. And now Jesus is here and he is the object. We've got the real thing. There's no more need to be distracted by or to look to lesser things, to shadows. And so as sort of the premier illustration of that, the author of Hebrews offers Moses and the tabernacle. Tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. When we speak of the tabernacle, we're talking about the tent of meeting that the Israelite people carried around with them during the Exodus years where the Levites would carry all the supplies necessary. When the Israelites would stop somewhere to camp, the Levites would rush to set that up first so that they could put the Ark of the Covenant inside it, which represented the presence of God, and the Lord would have somewhere to dwell in their midst. When we talk about the tabernacle, that's what we're talking about. It was a tent provided for the ark so that the Lord could dwell with the Israelites in a particular place. It's at the start and the end of the instructions for the building of that tabernacle that we get the quote that's in Hebrews 8, verse 5. That comes from Exodus 25, verse 40. As Moses is up on the mountain, he receives the law, and he also receives instructions for building this tent. And they were very specific. In fact, it's possible that you've done a Bible reading plan where you thought, you know what, over the course of this year, I'm going to read Genesis to Revelation, start to finish. And you went through Genesis, and there were all these great stories, and it was very interesting, and then it felt that way at the start of Exodus, and then you got to Exodus 24. And there were these tedious instructions for this tabernacle. And from 24 to 28, you kind of muscled your way through. You thought, I was ready for this. I knew there were going to be some parts that were hard. I can do this. You got to 28, and you thought, whew, we're moving on. And then you got to 35, and it started over again. And it felt like you read the exact same thing you read in chapters 24 to 28. That's because it was the exact same. Moses was supposed to be very careful to see to it that he built everything exactly the way the Lord showed him. So in 24 to 28, the Lord showed him how to do it. And then in 35 to 39, he did it exactly. And you got both sets of that. Why? So you could see that Moses was faithful, that he did it the exact way. And somewhere in between 35 and 39, you said, you know what, we'll try again next year. I'll be more prepared for that Exodus passage. The tabernacle had to be exact because it was a copy of something. It was a copy of the place where the Lord dwells eternally, this holy throne room. And if Moses was going to build that and the Lord was going to dwell with the people, there were very specific instructions for how that was going to happen. It was a copy, a shadow of a real thing. And then, like that, we've got all these Old Testament shadows, but now we have the real thing. You have no need for the tent of meeting if you're standing in the throne room of God. You've got the object. Stop looking at the shadow. This is what we're going to see over the course of this morning. Jesus is the object. He's a superior person who offers his ministry in a superior place, 
and who gave himself as a superior propitiation. I needed another P word. Person, place, propitiation. I could have said person, place, sacrifice, but two P's and an S is not very memorable. Three P's, on the other hand, 10 years from now, you're going to say, I remember that sermon because he used three P's. Look at Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. That's very helpful from the author. He's keying you in. Pay attention. We have this kind of high priest. This kind. What does he mean by that? Well, let's take a look backward. If you've got a paper, hard copy Bible in front of you, we're going to do some flipping backward. If you've got your Bible in an electronic form, be prepared to swipe to the right so you can move backward through the chapters of Hebrews with us. This is the kind of high priest we have. Hebrews 7, verse 28. One who has been perfected forever. Those were the last words of Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 26, this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's the one we have in Jesus, innocent, holy, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Verse 24, but because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. That's the kind of priest we have, a permanent one. Verse 7 of chapter 7. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. That was about Melchizedek and Abraham. But Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, so we have this superior priest who's superior in every way. Chapter 7, verse 2. Melchizedek was this blending of a king of righteousness and a king of peace, and in Jesus we have this kind of priest who holds both offices. But it wasn't just in chapter 7 that this conversation happened. Chapter 5, verse 5. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest. He was humble. We have this kind of priest who was exalted by the Lord, who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He's able to sympathize. We have one who is tempted in every way. Note, all high priests were like that. They were of the people they could sympathize. They were tempted just like the rest of humanity. But here comes the difference. Yet without sin, he's superior. He never sinned. Chapter 3, verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his household. We've got this high priest who is faithful in all matters. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest. He's both the sent one, an apostle, and he's also the high priest, the representative. That's who we have in Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. Why? So that he could be merciful and faithful. That's the kind of high priest we have. Chapter 2, verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He shares in flesh. He shares in our blood. Chapter 2, verse 8. We were told that everything is subjected under his feet. 
He's superior in that kind of way. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In these last days, he, that's God, has spoken to us by his son, that's Jesus. God has appointed him heir of all things, made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That is the superiority of Jesus. What's the point in all of this? In Jesus, we have this superior person. We have history's most superior person. He's superior to any of the other high priests that ministered on our behalf. He's superior to any human who has ever lived. And just to make sure we really drill this down all the way to the core, the key here that we understand is that he is superior to me and he is superior to you. Which means you do not look to yourself as savior. You do not look to some other person as savior. You don't look to another human being to have all the answers. You don't look to another human being to provide your deepest satisfaction. You don't look to yourself for those things either. Why? Because we have this superior person, Jesus, like us in every way, shared flesh and blood, tempted in every way that we are, yet entirely without sin. King of righteousness, king of peace, brought together in one person. Greater has blessed the lesser. Superior has blessed the inferior. We have in Jesus this kind of high priest who's superior in every way. That's what Hebrews has been laying out. That's what Hebrews wants us to see. Not only do we have a superior person, But that superior person ministers on our behalf in a superior place. Look at the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 8. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not men. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, which tells us he must be somewhere else since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. Jesus conducts his ministry in the most superior place. It's not the first time that Hebrews has told us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty or the throne of the majesty on high. It's not the last time that Hebrews is going to say that. So it's important that we understand what the illusion means. In ancient times with kings who ruled from throne rooms, there would be a group of nobles that they would gather around them who would often sit in that place with them. And the most noble of those people, the most powerful of that group, would sit to the king's right. The closest thing we have to that kind of image would be like a presidential cabinet, secretary of state, secretary of defense, secretary of war, that the president would gather together. My wife and I have recently started watching The Crown on Netflix And there are a lot of scenes where Winston Churchill is gathered together with his cabinet and seated just to his right is a man named Anthony Eaton. He was their foreign affairs minister, but he was Winston Churchill's right-hand man. He sat right there in that room at Winston Churchill's right. Why? So that when it was time for Anthony Eaton to say something, the prime minister wouldn't miss it. He's seated at the right. He's got the most influence. He's got the ability to speak directly. He's the most powerful outside of the monarch or the king or the prime minister in that situation. Jesus is seated in that place, most noble, 
most prestigious, most superior, immediate access to the Father. No priest could occupy that spot. Only Jesus could. And verse 2 goes on to tell us that he's seated in that place in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, not the copy that Moses set up, not the one that was built by human hands or that was confined to human time. He conducts that ministry not in a place that was a replica of something glorious and awesome. He conducts that ministry in the real spot, the true tabernacle that's built by the Lord, where God is seated on his throne. That's where Jesus ministers, not before an altar, not before a shadow or a copy, but before the real thing. He's in heaven at the very throne of God, not in an earthly building at an altar that's meant to offer a shadowy picture of the splendor of heaven. He's in the real thing bodily right now. Not the first time we've seen this. Flip back to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this hope, this hope is Jesus, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It, Jesus, enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he became a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus entered on our behalf behind the curtain where we could not go into the inner sanctuary where we have no place because of our sinfulness and our brokenness as a forerunner. And he's there right now anchoring us in that place. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ received God's grace. You are anchored there because Jesus is present. He's there so you can be there. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. He's passed through the heavens. Verse 10 of chapter 4. For the person who has entered his rest, Jesus's, has rested from his own work just as God did from his. You've He's passed through the heavens on your behalf and sat down at the right hand of God. He's rested there. You enter true rest by coming to him in that superior place. Chapter 1, verse 3, that was the first time we saw that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 8, verse 6, is where the author of Hebrews launches into his next point. That's, we're gonna, we're, we'll talk more about it next week, but says this, but Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. So this superior person is in a superior place and he sat down, no more offering of sacrifices, no other priest could sit down because his work always went on. But Jesus sat, but it doesn't mean that his ministry has ended. He's got a superior ministry because he mediates this better covenant from that place. We've already been told that he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. At the right hand of the Father, he's doing something. There's a ministry that he conducts in that superior place. The point of all of this is this. Jesus is ministering in the most superior place right now, the holiest of all holy places, the eternal throne room of God. And the point is this. We should direct our eyes to that place, not to inferior people in inferior places. 
It's the way Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3 say it. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life was hidden with Christ in God. Life gets hard. Someone else's brokenness comes crashing into you and wreaks havoc upon your life. Your own sin or your own brokenness creates consequences and the waves ripple out into your family or into your workplace or into your extended relationships. Maybe it's that illness comes calling or whatever the case might be. And our initial instinct, even those of us who love Jesus, is to look to an inferior thing here on earth in an inferior place as if that holds all the answers and all the hope and all the joy and all the correction that we need. And it could not be further from the truth. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then when that starts to happen, you send your eyes to the superior place because that's where the superior one is, who wields all the power, has all the wisdom, has all the perspective, knows all the facts, and can ultimately bring you all the hope that you need. We don't look to that place as an escape, as if our Christian faith has just given us the means by which we kind of try to leave this brokenness. No, we look to it as the place of encouragement, as the place of hope that we can persevere in the midst of this and we have an advocate at the right hand of the majesty on high interceding on our behalf who also has the power to make something happen in your life. The superior person in the superior place. The reality of our flesh is that we think we can look to inferior people in inferior places as if they're going to solve the problems. There's wonderful wisdom available on earth in a number of different places, but all of the gurus in all of the sectors of life and all of the self-help books will only ever come up a little bit short. You need something superior. Not only do you need something superior, you need the one who is superior in the superior place and actually has the power to make difference in this world and in your life. Stop looking to inferior people in inferior places. You have an advocate at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has the ear of the Father, the perspective of eternity, and the wisdom and the power of the creator of the universe. Why would you look anywhere else? That's the plea to this Jewish Christian church. That's the plea to the church today. Why would you look anywhere else? Why would you let yourself think that something inferior could do what only the superior one can. And last, he offers a superior propitiation, a superior sacrifice. Propitiation just means payment or atonement. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Jesus offered himself as history's most superior propitiation. He had to have something to offer. Gifts, offerings, sacrifices, those were the means by which the priests of the Old Testament represented their people to God. And Jesus had to do the same. And so, what did he do? He took the blood of his superior person into that superior place, and he made the final sacrifice that humanity would ever need. Not the first time we've seen this. Hebrews 7, verse 27 He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. That's the reason he's seated at the right hand of God, not standing. He's seated because he offered the final sacrifice. 
and he could sit down. The work was finished. He's got nothing left to accomplish. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all of their lives. Through death, he destroyed the power of death. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. He came to this earth, took on flesh, was made a little lower than the angels for 33 years so that he might taste death for everyone and extend God's unthinkable grace to humanity. And he's crowned with honor because of it. The point of all this, you don't need anything else. You have a superior person who offered himself as a superior propitiation, a superior gift, a superior payment, and then he carried that payment into the most superior place and offered it once and for all. Here's what I think can often happen in the life of people who follow Jesus. We see our need for a Savior. We understand this sinless man, Jesus Christ, who came and lived this unbelievable life, did these incredible miracles, these deep and profound teachings, offered himself on the cross in his perfect and holy blood, paid the price for our sin. We see the grace of that and we accept it by faith. And then we somehow think that the rest of our lives, now we've got to close the gap with our behavior. As if Jesus' sacrifice took us 99% of the way there. And if I live well enough, I can close the 1% and then I'll stand before the Lord holy and acceptable and be brought into his presence. And that is such a lie. He offered the superior payment. It's already been given. You need not close the gap on your own. Stop thinking that you've got to live a particular way in order to somehow verify or finalize your atonement. You don't need to. It was given, finished, final. He didn't say it is almost done from the cross. He said it is finished, completed, total, final, accomplished. I have done it. It is over. If you have not fully accepted that and it hasn't sunk down all the way into your core, I love you, but I don't know if you know what grace is. You still think you have to earn it and you never will. You will always come up short. Not only that, but you will exhaust yourself trying to find out what's missing. It will leave you weary and tired, feeling condemned and like you're falling short. When he's already offered the most superior sacrifice needed. It's given to you. You accept that grace and you understand that it makes you completely clean before the Father. It's broken the power of death and it's destroyed the one holding the power of death so that those who were locked in slavery might be set free. And that same grace that set you free now empowers you to walk in freedom. The same sacrifice that has forgiven your sin has also given you the power to walk in freedom from sin.
but you don't have to finish the act on Jesus's behalf. He did it for you. It's already done. A superior gift. In Jesus, we have the object. We need not be distracted by the shadows. I'm not sure there are any people in this room who would be tempted to look to Judaism as the shadows that might actually save us. That doesn't mean that in 2020, we don't get distracted by shadows of various kinds all the time. In fact, I think it's incredibly common that our flesh grabs hold of something lesser than Jesus as if it is a supreme object in and of itself. Let me just give you some examples. Some of you really love technology. There's nothing wrong with loving technology. But at times, we can be tempted to think that technology is going to somehow solve all of our problems. It's going to make the world completely better, as if it's going to alleviate all the brokenness and all of the yuck that exists in our world. And we start to think that technology exists as an end to itself, rather than pointing us to the one who created everything from nothing. We should look at humans' ability our humanity's ability to create these incredible pieces of technology and be awed by the one who has knowledge that is infinite and beyond our even capability to grasp. You should look at the computer in your hand that gives you access to the entire world and think, there's a God who sits on a throne and doesn't need Wikipedia. Like, you should be amazed by that. Some have maybe bumped in recently to serious health struggles. <clears throat> Maybe someone in your family has bumped into a serious health struggle. And all you can think about, and, and I get this, because I, I've been in these places, or I, I've, I've been in situations like this with my family, or I've sat in hospital rooms alongside you, and I understand how tempting it can become to just think that medicine is, is the end. It's the be-all, end-all. And praise the Lord for the way that he has sovereignly and providentially guided humanity and gifted individuals to come up with amazing techniques and uh, medications that heal people from diseases that 100 years ago just would have been a death sentence. But in those places, we ought to see the medicine as a gift from the healer. The one who's holding out to us the opportunity for health and for life and not see medicine as the end. That's a shadow. It's a lesser thing. See the healer as the end, who's provided that gift. Maybe you're just someone who like visually you're just very stimulated by beautiful things, whether it be in nature or in art or in music or maybe like a really well-plated meal. You're like, I don't even want to eat it because it's so beautiful. We should see beauty not as an end, but as the thing which reminds us that one day, we're going to walk into the throne room of God and we're going to see Jesus there and him and all of his full radiance of God displaying colors that we've never seen before is going to make the most beautiful things on this earth look pale and dim compared to him. Don't be distracted by the shadows. See through them to the superior one who ministers in a superior place offered himself as a superior propitiation and ought to be the only thing that our souls long for. When I was growing up, particularly like middle school, junior high, high school, I went through this phase where I refused to eat off-brand food. 
my mom came home from the grocery store with Honey Nut Scooters <laughs> instead of Honey Nut Cheerios or Toaster Tarts instead of Pop-Tarts or if you even think about walking into this house with Dr. Thunder, <laughs> when there's Dr. Pepper out there, it's just going to sit in the cabinet or sit in the refrigerator, to which my mom would say, you can just go hungry. <laughs> I, didn't want the sh I didn't want the shadow. I wanted the real thing. So I'll go hungry. But here's the thing with Jesus. You stuff yourself full of the shadows. You will always be hungry. Always. You feast on the object. And you will never want for anything else. You will not ever thirst for anything else. You will not ever hunger for anything else. Because you'll be feasting on the object, not the shadow. You could shove your life full of all the wonderful shadows that this world has to offer and you will only ever be left wanting more. Or you can feast on the object and not just be satisfied, but have your soul to its deepest, deepest depth completely nourished in every single way. You've got the object. Don't be distracted by the shadows. Jesus is better. He's better than everything. He's superior to all things. Feast on that. I want to end with the way Revelation paints this picture. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. And as I do this, if you're someone who's going to pass out communion, would you come and grab these trays and, and start to distribute those? <clears throat> Try really hard to listen while you're passing these down your rows. I'm not going to offer a ton of commentary. I, just, I mostly want this to stand for itself. Revelation offers a couple of different pictures. It offers a picture of what eternity is going to be like when new heaven and new earth are created and those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus go to spend eternity in that place. That's future and coming, but it also offers these small windows into what heaven is like right now, the throne room of God. What's happening in that place? And Revelation 4 and 5 is a picture of that. This is what it says. After this, I looked, I as John, the author of Revelation. And there in heaven was an open door. The first verse that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Jasper and carnelian are both red kind of different shades. Carnelian can be kind of orangish or yellow at times, can be kind of rust colored. But John says, there was someone seated on the throne and he was like red and red. But there was also a rainbow, but it was emerald. Emerald is green. What's he saying? I don't have words to describe the colors that I'm seeing, so I'm giving you the best thing that I can. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures, covered with eyes in front and in back, were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Lord, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. That sounds like a heck of a place. Now watch this. Then... I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. Okay, it's a mighty angel. Think Gabriel or Michael, right? It's not some angel who's like, I don't know, I've only been working here for two days, right? It's not an intern angel. This is a mighty one who's looking at the situation and seeing John looking at this scroll and proclaiming, who can open it? John says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, so John's thinking, a lion. Tribe of Judah, here he comes. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Then listen to what happens. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the sound of many angels around the throne. And also of the living creatures and of the elders, their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. John says, I can't even describe the beauty of this place. It's got colors that I don't understand, so I'll just tell you that they were both red. It's got a rainbow that doesn't look like a rainbow, so I'll just tell you it was green. It's got this 
glassy sea that I can't even describe what it looks like, so I'll just say it was crystal. There are these four creatures and these 24 elders, and then into that place comes this lamb who brings with him his blood. His blood that has purchased a people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue and turned them in to a kingdom of priests to God. And it is by that blood that the lamb wields all the power necessary to open up that scroll. It's by that blood that the lamb is able to wield all the power necessary to bring you into that place. And what happens in that moment? That whole magnificent, spectacular, splendid place erupts in worship. And suddenly John realizes it's not just 24 elders and four creatures that are here, but we got angels, countless thousands of them, plus thousands of thousands. And everybody is singing one song. Glory and honor and praise and blessing be unto God and the Lamb forever and ever. Superior person in a superior place because he came in with the blood of a superior propitiation. Amen? Amen. There's the object. Why would you look anywhere else? And so the author of Hebrews called his readers' minds to this mountain where Moses went to get a copy of the real thing. And from that point forward, in a copy of that throne room, priests who were a shadow of Jesus would offer a sacrifice. And so this morning, I want to call your minds to a mountain, more of a hill outside of Jerusalem, Calvary, where the object offered himself, and then entered into the sanctuary. Body and blood, a superior gift from a superior person who took that gift into the most superior place and makes it possible for you to stand there anchored for all of eternity. We take communion as a means of Colossians 3, 1 to 3, directing our hearts to that place where the Son of God is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen? Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of Him. This is the blood of Christ, poured out for you. Take and drink in remembrance of Him. May we not be distracted by the shadows, but would we feast on the object. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let's stand and sing together.